And today we up here are going to be continuing our look at life after death, specifically what happens right after your heart stops beating. And last week we talked about how in that moment the body ultimately separates from the soul. And the body dies. It ceases to have life from dust to dust, as Scripture tells us. But your soul is completely different. Your soul is eternal. And it is your soul, or, yeah, so then it's your soul ultimately that's going to face judgment. Either the white throne judgment where you stand before the perfect and holy God and He's going to look at everything that you did in your life and He's going to look at the book of life to see if your name is written there. And it's going to be a trial. And at that point, He's going to determine if you are fit to enter into heaven with Him. And those who have not put their faith and their trust in Jesus do not have their names in the book of life. And it says that they are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. However, for Christians who believe in Jesus, they will stand instead before Christ in the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, this picture of actually where the rewards were given to the competitors at the Olympics in Greece, in Athens. And so Jesus will reward you either for the good or the bad that you have done in this life. But it's a judgment of reward of a different kind there. But today, and the next week, we're going to be looking at the glories of heaven and what the saints have to look forward to as they move from this life on earth to the life with God for all eternity. But today, we're looking at a far darker and more challenging topic H-E double hockey sticks. Is that what you guys said when you were kids? I wasn't allowed to say hell. I got a little fire graphic up there for you. It wouldn't be a sermon on hell without a little bit of fire. And here's the issue with hell. I can make a few jokes about it because that's kind of what the world does with this topic. They make jokes about it. They make these caricatures. We've got demons and the devil and they've got little horns and red tights and pitchforks and they run around, you know, catching people and bringing them down to this place where there's a big party. We've got Halloween, which is essentially, it's becoming almost as big as Christmas. The stores, it grosses me out. The stores sell almost as much stuff for Halloween as they do for Christmas to basically celebrate evil, darkness, death, and hell. Because we don't think much about it. It's not a scary place. It's not bad. Let's make fun of it. Quite honestly, while we talk about it in this realm of Halloween, only 40% of Americans say that they actually believe it's a real place that exists. It's far fewer than those who believe in heaven. A lot of people are like, of course heaven exists and I'm going there. But those who actually believe in hell and much less believe they're going there, completely different statistics. And that joke then demonstrates that we've got this problem. So many people have heard about hell. Even non-Christians, people who've never been in church, don't know the names of Moses or David or Elijah, but they know they've heard of hell. They have some grasp that hell and fire go together, but they really don't know anything else about it. And so as a result, they can't live any kind of an informed life based on the truth of what God tells us about hell. And so today, that's what we're going to do. Today, I want you to walk out of here not ignorant about what the Bible says about hell. 
not naive and just believing these weird caricatures that the world has depicted in media, but instead truly understand what is hell? What's it like? Who's there? How could God ever send anybody there if He's all love? Those are the questions that I want to answer today. And even more than that, I want you to understand why the existence of hell is actually good for the believer. So our first question on the screen, what is hell? I think that there's a lot of confusion around what hell is because the concept of where the unrighteous go when they die is actually explained through a variety of different words and phrases in Scripture. I'll be honest, as I was studying for this and reading, I read a lot on this topic before I got up here to preach because it is kind of this goofy gray area with a lot of, uh, a lot of mistruth that people have heard and they think it's true, but it's not in Scripture. One book I found very helpful is called Erasing Hell. It's by Francis Chan. If you're interested in this topic or you want to dig deeper, I would highly recommend picking up that book, Erasing Hell. Uh, but in hell, we've got a couple of words and we have to look at what they are. So the first word is Sheol. And that is actually the Hebrew word. It's used very often in our Old Testament. Many of the newer translations, rather than calling it hell or the grave, they just put the word Sheol because that's kind of how the Hebrew word was pronounced. And it just means the place of the dead. It was spoken of frequently. If you look through like the new NIV version of the Bible, Israel, who's also Jacob, God changed his name to Israel, he talks often about Sheol at the end of his life. Job speaks of it frequently in his book. David writes about it numerous times in the Psalms, and Solomon has over a dozen Proverbs with that word as well. The place of the dead. It was pictured as below the earth. It was subterranean. You went down to Sheol. And both the Righteous and the unrighteous both experience time in this place of the dead. Our best depiction of what Sheol looked like or was like is actually where Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 16. That's going to be our primary text today. So if you want to open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 16, we'll be touching through this chapter throughout the message. But in this story, Jesus, some people would call it a parable, and so it's not real, but this is a story where Jesus refers to a person by name and uses some very specific details, probably about a person that his disciples would have known. And so that's why people understand this to be a story and to be conveying the truth of this Sheol, this underworld. So Luke 16, verse 19 begins, Jesus teaching these words. He says, there was a rich man, a certain rich man, some translations say, who is dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The King James there says, Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. So, we've got this story and what we see here is that in Sheol, this place of the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous go there. Both Lazarus goes 
and the certain rich man who had experienced all the good things in his life. But they go to different places. There's Abraham's bosom. Here it's called Abraham's side. That's where the righteous people, those who put their trust in God, ended up there. And then you had the wicked. They ended up in this place called Hades. And we're going to talk about that next. And there's a chasm, and it was divided. So what is this Abraham's bosom? Okay, this is the only place it's mentioned, but we've got to understand the way salvation works is we are saved by the atoning death and shedding of blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us that the shedding of blood of bulls and goats and oxen in the, Testament, in the Old Testament in the temple was a foreshadow. It was just to show us what the sacrifice needed to be, but it was never good enough to get anybody to the presence of God. The only thing that gets all of us to the presence of God is forgiveness by the shed blood of Jesus. And so that's why anybody who died before Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, there was nothing to make payment for them to be fully made right with God. So it was at Jesus' death and resurrection that in Matthew it talks about the dead bodies were walking around in the city and we've got this weird glimpse and we say, well, what is that? It was ultimately people had left this place of Abraham's bosom and all those who were righteous and cared about God were able to follow Jesus, who Scripture says was the first fruits of those who were resurrected from the dead and they all got to experience that full resurrection and eternal life because of the blood of God who is shed on their behalf. Okay? Does that make sense? Then we've got Hades. Okay? And Hades is where those who do not live a righteous life. This is where the wicked have been put also in Sheol. This is a Greek word. So in the New Testament, Hades is a word in the Greek. And what I find fascinating, I was looking through some Bible translations. If you have an older NIV Bible published before 2011, most of your verses that have the Greek word for Hades translate it as hell. When you get to the new NIV, they start translating it Hades because they realize Hades is slightly different than what we all understand hell to be. And so why does this matter? I know some of you right now, your eyes are glazing over. Stick with me, okay? This stuff actually matters. Because when we think of hell, we're thinking about where bad people go for all of eternity. But that's not Hades. Hades is actually where bad people who have not put their faith in Jesus go before the final judgment. And here's where I have to back up to last week's message a little bit. So last week I talked about the moment you stop breathing and your heart stops pumping blood, there's going to be a judgment. And we talked about how to be absent from this world is to be present with the Lord. And so I believe that as Christians, when we die in our next moment, we see Jesus. However, the great white throne judgment we talked about where unbelievers go, that is not an as-you-die type of thing. It didn't start 2,000 years ago and God's just judging people willy-nilly as they show up at the gate. 
The great white throne judgment is one final judgment that's going to happen at our last day that this earth exists on the final judgment day. Everybody's going to be judged at that moment and then there's going to be this eternal state of hell. So where do people go between the moment they cease to breathe and their body is destroyed and that great white throne judgment? That is Hades, okay? Some people might hear that and say, so Ryan, are you talking about purgatory? No, I'm not talking about purgatory. Purgatory allows you to escape. It allows people to say prayers for you and you to change your final resting place. But that's not what we learn about Hades when we continue looking at this passage in Luke chapter 16. So we're going to look now down at verse 24 of Luke 16. It says, so he called to him, This is the rich man. Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Even in hell, the rich man thinks that he gets to tell Lazarus what to do. I find that very fascinating. He's in agony. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So here we're learning a little bit more about Sheol or this place, Hades. And what we see first is that the experience of agony and torment. He's so thirsty, it's so hot, that he says, if only he can dip his finger in water to cool my tongue. We also see that the soul has memory and consciousness. This isn't just an unconscious place that people's spirits and souls go and they'll not feel it or recognize it. He has memory. He recognizes Lazarus. He knows who Abraham is. There's a conscious element to this torment in Hades. And finally, your eternity is set. There's a chasm. People in Abraham's bosom at this time can't cross over to Hades. People in Hades can't cross over. What happens to you in this life before you die sets where you go for all of eternity. There's no flipping it later. There's no praying people out of purgatory and into heaven. Hades is simply this holding place for people after they die. Next word we get, the most common Greek word that gets translated as hell in your Bible is Gehenna. Okay? Gehenna in the Greek actually means Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was a known valley that you see shows up multiple times in the Old Testament. It's right outside of Jerusalem. What we know about this Valley of Hinnom is that it's infamous on the south side of Jerusalem. It's where some of the ancient Israelites, because of King Ahaz, they sacrificed their children to the Canaanite god of Moloch. It says they passed them through the fire and they had many of the families in Jerusalem burn up their children in the valley of Hinnom as a sacrifice to the god Molech. How do you think God received that? He was not happy at all. 
And so as a result, this valley of Hinnom became a really bad place. In the life of King Hezekiah, there's a def they defeat 165,000 Assyrian military troops and they dump those bodies at the valley of Hinnom. When the people of Israel continue to turn away from God even after this happens, the prophet Jeremiah speaks for God in Jeremiah 7.32 and he says this, Behold, the days are coming when it will no longer be called the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And ultimately, Jeremiah predicts that many Israelites will be thrown as corpses into this valley. And that prediction comes true. And so what happens is this Hinnom Valley just becomes known as this awful, terrible, rotting place where people are burned up and where rotten corpses are burned and consumed. And so by the time of Jesus, this word Gehenna was just used to describe the ultimate fiery torment of where people, the unrighteous, will go when ultimately they die. And so it was used as shorthand. They just called it Gehenna, referring to a physical place when they were referring to ultimately this eternal state of the wicked. In still other places, Jesus uses phrases that don't even, they're not single words that are translated as hell. But in parables, he talks about how people in just Matthew 25 alone, he talks about how those who don't know him will be thrown into outer darkness. Or in another parable in that same chapter, they will be thrown into the eternal fire. In the book of Revelation, we get this different imagery of the lake of fire. It appears only in the book of Revelation, but it appears many different times. And what we see is the lake of fire is the final eternal home of the wicked. It makes it very clear that this is officially the final resting place. Hades is temporary. The lake of fire is where people end up for all of eternity. The, back in Revelation 20, we looked at this passage last week actually, when we were learning about the great white throne judgment. This is how that passage ends. I cut it off before this, knowing we were coming back to it. Revelation 20, verses 12 through 15 says, The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. So you see this. People die. They go to Hades. They wait in Hades. It's not a great place at all. There's still agony and torment, but it's waiting for this judgment. They're judged according to what they had done. Verse 14, Then the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And so really, when we think of hell, typically we're thinking about this lake of fire, this eternal hell that lasts forever, where everything comes to its fulfillment and conclusion when God is done dealing with evil and wickedness in this world. So, there's a lot there to wrap your minds around. But here's the question I think lots of people are thinking about. 
well, what is hell actually going to be like? To this point, you've probably noticed we've got this theme of fire. It's all over in these passages. From the rich man just wanting that drop of water while he's in Hades, to Gehenna where corpses had been burned for hundreds of years before Jesus, to the phrases used of eternal fire and the lake of fire, the imagery used by Jesus and other New Testament writers all speak to fire. But not everybody agrees that flames and fire and burning skin is the literal sensation that, we're, that people would have in hell. We have to understand its imagery, okay? There are some who would say literally, yes, there's going to be fire. I probably land on the side that says Jesus was using metaphors to try to convey something in a supernatural realm that he can't explain to us if we've never seen it. He can't describe something that we have never experienced. And so he's trying to use what we have experience with to explain something that's far worse and far more uh, awful to be a part of that we can't even wrap our minds around. And so that's why I think it's funny when people look and they say, well, he calls it fire, but it's also outer darkness. Those are mutually exclusive. Which is it, Jesus? It's both, okay? Jesus is using what we know to try to help us to understand something that we can't even wrap our minds around. So he's just trying to give us pictures. This outer darkness, it's not going to be a party with your friends. You are going to feel so isolated and alone. It's going to be like solitary confinement for forever. I just heard up in Wisconsin, the jails, they've been basically in lockdown for months. And everybody's saying, well, this is terrible. It's nothing compared to hell. You are going to feel so utterly alone. And there's going to be this torment, this suffering, this agony that we can best compare to fire, but it could have nothing to do with fire. Is Jesus trying to explain it to us so that we understand what it's going to be like, the feelings that it's going to cause? And that's why, personally, I think the sights, the sounds, and the smells of hell are way less significant than understanding how it's going to make people feel, okay? And that is very clearly described in Scripture, that people are going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be this incredible sorrow and rage and anger. We've seen people when they're angry and people left to their own devices understanding what they've missed out on are going to leave these deep, terrible feelings. There's going to be anguish and torment and suffering. It's not a place where you go and you party with your friends and, hey, we're all going to have a great time down there. That is not what this place is going to be like. I also believe that suffering and torment is going to be less the result of what is in hell and more the result of what is not in hell. So some people have been to terrible places on this earth, to, you know, orphanages in India where there's rats stealing the food from the kids and no parents and utter disgust and filth. And they say, this is hell on earth. And we say, yeah, that's terrible. And they have sunrises and sunsets and the rain falls on them 
and the birds chirp. And there are still glimpses of the beauty of God's creation even in the worst places of this world. But when you get to hell, everything that is attributed to God is removed. All the vestiges of God's goodness and His love have been taken out of that place. And God is completely absent. That's what's described in 2 Thessalonians verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 9. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. Imagine a place where there is no goodness, no kindness, Nothing that is from God's hand at all. It has all been removed. And all that's left are the most evil things that you've experienced. All the deepest hurts that have been done to you. All the most vile people that you've run across. And all those feelings of shame and guilt all wrapped up together. No love, no mercy, and no hope of forgiveness. Can you understand? This is where the torment and the agony comes from. People imagine, well, God is like some sadistic uh, being who's like, I'm going to cause all this torture in your life. And I look at it and I say, I think when God simply removes Himself, we create enough torture and torment for ourselves. We underestimate how wicked we can be. So, Who's going to be in hell? Next question. First and foremost, we have to understand, hell is going to be filled with his, the original intended audience. That was Satan and his demons. Hell makes a lot more sense when you understand when God originally made hell, it was before He'd made this earth, before Adam and Eve had sinned, before He saw that there was going to be judgment and people were going to need to be separated from Him. He made it for the rebellion of the angels and Satan their leader. That makes sense. We make prisons for criminals to separate them from the general population for the safety of the general population, correct? God did the same thing. He made a place for all the evil, rebellious angels to go. And that's who hell was made for and that's who's going to be there first and foremost. Matthew 24, 41 tells us this. When Jesus is teaching, He says, Then that He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I think hell makes more sense when you put it in the perspective that it wasn't originally intended for us. We screwed it up. It was intended for the rebellious demons. But they won't be the only ones in hell. And this is the really sobering truth that we all have to wrestle with. That I see your faces. We all feel the gravity of this topic. And it's really uncomfortable for me to stand up here and teach it. But we're going to keep going because it's important that we understand it. Matthew seven thirteen verse 14 says, Jesus teaching in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. 
But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus says most people are going down the road to hell and they don't even know it. And that's America today. When polling people, only one half of 1% believe hell exists and that they are going there. That's only one per every 200 people actually think hell is a place where they belong. And that's because we all think that I get to judge myself and I'm not a bad person. Why would God send me to hell? We all think that we get to sit behind the bench and we get to be the judge of our own lives and we get to determine who is good and who is bad. And of course, I am good. We like to think that we've not done enough to actually deserve punishment from God. But the truth is, every single one of us deserve punishment from God. Scripture is very clear in that regard. For all of us have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all are sinners. We all are wicked. Just like the demons who rebelled against God and before the world was formed, we have all at one time or another rebelled against God in our hearts. So why would we expect a different outcome? But God, in His goodness and His mercy and His faithfulness to the humanity that He created, He made a way. This is what Christianity is all about. It's looking at where ultimately the fate of all people because of our witness or because of our wickedness, and we say, but God, in His mercy, His faithfulness, made a way by sending His Son Jesus to live this perfect life, to die on the cross, so that His blood pays the price that we deserve to have to have paid for ourselves. So that we can avoid hell simply by putting our faith in Jesus and saying, Jesus, I am not righteous enough, but You are. And so I want to put on your righteousness is what Paul describes in his letters. That we take off our sinful nature. We put on His righteousness so that we can go to heaven and we can be with God. But for those who don't prepare themselves, hell is awaiting them. So it's in that moment that you put your faith in Jesus. This is why we talk about so much. It's not about following the rules, folks. It's about trusting in Jesus Asking Jesus in your heart and saying, God, or Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to live my life according to how you want me to live your life. I submit to your rule and reign in my life. Forgive me. Because it's in that moment that your name gets scribbled across the book of life. And it's because of that you don't face the judgment the same way. That you bypass these horrors of hell. And you're welcomed into the kingdom of God that we're going to talk about next week. Unfortunately, as we've already discussed, many people go to their grave never making that decision to follow Jesus. And once you take your final breath, there's no changing your final destiny. At that moment, your eternity is sealed. So that's why it's so important to decide today. What are you going to do with this information? Here's one of the most important questions we have to wrestle when we think about hell. Why does a loving God send people to 
hell? This is a question that's turned a lot of people off from Jesus. My brother, I know, he struggled with this question. He says, if that's who God is, I want nothing to do with him. And people take their own self-righteousness and they decide that they get to decide if God is fair or not. But we have to look at this doctrine of hell and we have to understand that while yes, to some it is incredibly distasteful, we have to also understand that it is for the good of those who follow Jesus. I think the Apostle Paul describes it with clarity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 6 through 9. He says this. He leads with, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. We saw that last verse. So you see here, God uses natural consequences. I use that as a parent. I was taught that when your kid does something, you allow the consequence of that poor choice to impact them. God does the exact same thing. And He's been doing it through all of history. Think about it. Adam and Eve are told, don't eat from that tree. And when they do, they're banished from the garden. There's instantly a consequence. Then we're told humanity gets so evil that God decides to drown them all with a flood. Then we see Israel, God's own chosen people, refuse to follow Him and they keep turning to other gods. So He gives them up to destruction. He gives them up to rape and murder and slaughter and they're pulled away to other nations. He's allowed destruction on His people who don't follow Him all through history. We see it through the Old Testament. So why would we think that we get out of that? What we see is hell is simply God's eternal final judgment. It's the final consequence that naturally every person deserves. When you recognize that evil cannot exist in the presence of a holy God, those two things cannot be together. So He must separate them. And when you remove all the goodness and love of God, what you're left with is the worst of all things. And that is hell. What's interesting is that the same people who find hell so incredibly appalling also want their world to be fair and just. They want everybody to be treated equal. They deem what is just and what is fair. They like to pretend that they're the judge. And what's interesting there is it's because of the image of God stamped on their lives that they want justice. We all want justice. When somebody is murdered, we want that murderer to be held responsible. When somebody gets drunk and kills a family on the road because they get into their car, we want to see that person held accountable. Hell is that exact same concept. It's holding people accountable for how they live. Unfortunately, some people say, but Ryan, I'm not that bad. And when you say that, what you're saying is you don't understand two things. You don't understand how holy 
righteous, and perfect God is. You do not see Him nearly high enough above us. And you also do not see how lowly and wicked and evil your life and your heart is. And we say, well, God's just a little bit for me. I'm not that bad. I should be able to get in. No, that chasm is eternity wide. So we don't understand the nature of who God is. To fully understand why hell is necessary and good for the people of God, we have to understand the character of God. God is love. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but for all to come to eternal life. But he also knows that allowing evil to fester in and among the people he loves will ruin their paradise forever. And so, yes, God is love and he is just and holy. And when you put all those things together, you recognize there has to be a consequence for people who never want to follow God's way of living. They have to be separated or they're going to ruin it for the rest of us. It's like allowing the really bad kid to stay in the classroom and ruin the teaching environment for everybody. We understand that doesn't work. In the same way, we can't do that with our eternity. There has to be a separation. And what's going to be left for those who have no semblance of God's love and none of those who follow Him and are the light and the love of God, Christians, it's going to be miserable, awful, and eternal. It's not a torment he sadistically finds pleasure in, but it is the requirement of his holy justice. He removes people to hell so that his saints can experience the perfection for which he originally intended for all of us. So what do we do with this message? It's a heavy one. I get it. Let's look at Luke 16, how this parable ends. Verse 27. This is what Abraham... Uh, the rich man says, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. When the rich man finally understood the gravity of the life that he'd lived and the eternity that he was facing, he didn't argue with God's justice, but instead he wanted somebody to go warn his family so that they wouldn't suffer the same fate. And here's the lesson for us. If we don't think about hell, if we don't really know about hell, if we just are comfortable with our own lives and we're like, you know what, this is fine, I'll do me and you do you, then we're not thinking about other people's eternal souls. We just don't care that much. I'm as guilty as any of the rest of you to just kind of fall into a blasé like, well, you know, I want to be with God, but whatever. You pick your battle, and I guess that's your life. When you really look at the doctrine of hell, it should move you to a passionate pursuit of wanting to see people rescued from that outcome. I'm not trying to sell fire insurance here from the fires of hell. I'm simply trying to lay out what Scripture says we make better decisions when we're informed, don't we? Right? When you know all the facts, then you can make a better decision. This is what Scripture lays out for us. 
And my hope is that if we all truly believe what the Bible tells us about hell, then it should motivate us to want to talk to people about faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you right now to go door to door to your neighbors and tell them, you're going to hell, pray a prayer with me right now. But I am saying, we need to care. We need to passionately want to see them know Jesus and not just to get out of the flame of heaven, but because of what is made available for all of us who put our trust in Jesus is going to be so incredible. That's what I'm talking about next week. Please, if you came here this week, if you're a first-time attender, I know this message is hard. Come back next week so that you can hear the other side of the story and the goodness and the love and this incredible place that we all have in store. I'm so excited about that. But first, we have to wrestle with this other consequence. And here's how we're going to end the message today. I want every one of you to think about a person in your life who doesn't know Jesus. Think about that name. Close your eyes. Picture that name. Picture that face. I want you to think about whose soul are you willing to pray for? In this moment right now, we're going to pray for them. But also, this week, this month, recognizing that their soul is going to live for eternity. And ultimately, we don't bring anybody to faith. It's God who's the author and perfecter of faith. But we can play a part in praying for them. So join me now as we pray for these folks.